Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Okay, guys, today is definitely a pinch me moment as I get to sit down and talk to none other than Mark Simmons himself. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Hazel. It's so nice to have you here. I mean, I honestly don't even know where to begin, but if there are any of my listeners who potentially don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself for us? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I'll try. I am... um... So I I came originally from Virginia, grew up on a horse farm and uh, went down to Orlando, Florida with uh, a high school sweetheart and her family and saw SeaWorld for the first time. I think I was 16. And I just said, I have got to do that. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because I think every cell in my body was motivated towards that goal at that time. And I went back and studied. I actually took psychology and community college uh, a year or so later uh, worked out like a fiend and, and went after the job and got hired, uh, in 1987, I think at SeaWorld in Orlando, Florida. Um, and then I started out at Wayland Dolphin working with a lot of different cetacean species. Um, but then, you know, I'm six foot three and 200 some odd pounds. And (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, they quickly said, yeah, He's a little too big for dolphins, so they put me at Shamu, and that's where I stayed the rest of my career at SeaWorld, um, which launched me into a lot of other things. And, you know, I'm 54 now. I look back, and and I think, gosh, I I never, ever in a million years would have imagined that I'd travel the whole world in this profession, and I have. So uh, that's, that's it in a nutshell, I think. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to some of the later projects, you know, in a bit, uh, which are just mind blowing some of the things that you've been involved in. But going back to you starting at SeaWorld, you know, obviously, the industry was a very different time. It was, it was very, very different back then. What was it like for you starting at SeaWorld, starting at Shamu in, in those early days of your career? Well, I, I'd have to go. I'd have to go back uh, even to Wayland Dolphin before I went to Shamu because, you know, I, I again I'd never been in the water with anything like this. The first time was at Wayland Dolphin, and and they put me. It's really funny. You're you're not kidding. It was a different time, uh, and it's not that we were unsafe. It was that things were just so safe, so normalized that. Uh, we didn't consider what we now look at and think, oh my gosh, that's not safe. But you know, the first time I was in the water and I put my wetsuit on backwards, by the way, I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's how, <laughs> that's how bad I, I thought, you know, logically the zipper goes in the front. I mean, I'd never done anything like that. So, but the very first time I was in the water, I was in the water with a, uh, a gilai, um, and she was close to 900 pounds and, you know, the person spotting me had only been there six months, Steve Abel, in fact, and, and he was on stage doing other things. And so she dragged me around the pool a little bit and sat on me in the slide out. And I thought, well, geez, maybe this is normal, you know? So that was, 
<laughs> that was kind of my first experience. And then I was at Wayland often long enough to learn that that wasn't really appropriate. Um, by the time I got to Shamu, um, I had been in the water a lot because we, you know, there really wasn't the same process as there later on it become much it became much more of a an approval process um but we were just kind of thrown in and so i was thrown right in with the killer whales as well and i worked with kalina and kalina um she was nearly full grown not quite full grown at the time but she was just a cadillac i mean she was so good to teach you um you know she went out of her way to keep you on her back during fast swim rides and um, she was just, she was gentle and, and really good animal to learn with. So I, I did most everything with Colleen in my first, uh, six months to a year at Shamu and never looked back, you know, I never, people had asked me, were you, were you afraid of the whales? And I ne just never crossed my mind, never thought of it. Yeah. I think that's so amazing when you, when you get honest animals like that, that, like you said, they really are on your side and, and very, you know, forgiving in their ways, especially when you're a yeah. new trainer and you're just getting everything wrong. And they're like, Hey, it's okay. I got you. I know what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. Right. And what was it, what was it like being specifically in the water, um, with whales? And this was, this was almost my question when, you know, whether I was at Laura Park or Marineland, I would just sit mm. and pick, you know, trainers who had done waterworks brains, because that was just never going to be something I was going to be able to do. I've been lucky enough to do water descents, but that's a very different, you know, concept. Right. Um, so what was it like, you know, sharing space in the water with a whale? It's wow. Um, big question. I, I Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine doing it any other way. And I know that I'm blessed, you know, I look back and I, I see we were part of the, the last generation really. And, and also I was blessed in that I was, a I was sort of at the tail end of sort of the old guard. So I got to do things before even uh, BRC behavioral review committee and other approval committees came into place. And and a lot of different safety protocols came into place. Um, but I'll tell you, in all that time, jumping around here a little bit, but in all that time, in my opinion, the, the safest we ever were was back when I started because we were in the water for every session. We were in the water for everything. I mean, you just didn't, you know, you'd look at a pool and, and instead of going all the way around it, you'd swim across. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't, you know, and there wasn't a spotter and the whales were used to that. It was so, they were so accustomed to it. It didn't matter. Um, and I think that was the safest we ever were, but you know, I was, I got to be in the water with babies, newborn babies with, the, with the mom, uh, during that time, uh, younger males, um, so many different whales with with uh, Taima, who was learning water work at the time. And, you know, we talked a minute ago about animals that would really help you, like Kalina and like Katina and the animals I worked with. Well, Taima was the polar opposite of that. She didn't know. And she was just 100 miles an hour on everything. And so, you know, you better have good joints and <laughs> and and be springy to to work with her. But she taught me a lot because of that as well. So I just can't imagine I can't imagine a relationship with those animals and not being in their environment. That's the world that I, I knew. And I don't, I don't know how to see it any other way. Yeah. I mean, obviously 
that unfortunately for me I say unfortunately is not a part of you know what we do and I remember when I did become a killer whale trainer and I finally made that dream happen I sat and I put the believe dvd on my tv and I cried because I was just like Uh, I've made it happen I am a killer whale trainer but I'm still never going to be able to do that um that doesn't take anything away from the experience for me. I'm so unbelievably grateful to even have shared space with those animals um, and built relationships because that's such a massive part of it. Um, but I do love living vicariously through stories. Um, so do you yeah. have a favorite story of a time in the water or a favorite waterwork behavior <laughs> that you used to do? Or, um, Gosh, I have a lot. I have a lot. I mean, the physicality of it was absolutely a blast because I, you know, I mean, if you've ever been on a jet ski or you've ever been at what would, you know, people call a level two experience in the water, you know, worn jet boots or whatever it is, imagine that times 10 because the power, the sheer power uh, uh, beneath you um, pushing you through the water, whether it's a foot push or whether you're on their back or, or they're flinging you through the air. One of my favorite behaviors was a rocket hop. So a rocket hop for those that don't know what it is, is the animal would go on what we call a sighting bow to the side of the pool where they would get their run and their momentum up and you would dive in and swim down in the center of the pool. And, uh, you would meet about, I don't know, 10 to 15 feet beneath the surface and they're going full speed, you know? So you have to cup your hands together and hit their rostrum just right and hit your feet on their pecs just right at the exact moment, or they're just going to blow right through you. So they're coming Um, at you full speed under the, you're under the water. Yeah. 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 And so they would come up essentially, they come up and do a back dive, right? A back bow. That's essentially what they're doing, but you're grabbing onto them. And as they come up into that back dive, right at the apex of the behavior, you're flying off in, in doing a, a, you know, a big swan dive. Oh my goodness. I love that because of the physics of it, they would slingshot you and you could get so high. I mean, there were times um, you've seen Shamu Stadium in Orlando, you know, yeah. well. Um, there were times, you know, we get as high as the speaker cluster on that, which I guess would be, I don't know, had to be at least 30 feet, uh, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit more, but I love behaviors like that. And, you know, because it would challenge you, but I also loved the teamwork that a lot of those behaviors required it really required teamwork i mean and and some of the more advanced whales like katina if she felt you slip on a ride um she would slow down she would pause her body she would get under you she would balance to to keep you there you know um if you had a really good relationship with her there are a few trainers i saw her you know kind of let fall off. <laughs> but, and and that's a fun part of it too but gosh yeah i'll i'll never forget one time so here's the story you're asking me crazy stuff <laughs> oh i'm just i don't even need to speak during this interview i'm just <laughs> i'm just listening <laughs> well I'll probably you know i'll probably think of more as we go on but you know we we used to mess around and the whales loved it so um i'll, I'll never forget mike bose he was always uh an instigator so during the show there was a dry part with the guest interaction guest porch 
and you know you're not you don't want to interrupt that part of the show but we're backstage and and mike would go i bet you can't go out and foot push around the entire perimeter underwater and come back without you know coming up and of course you don't want to mess the show up so you had to go deep under the glass under the glass Mm -hmm. yeah and i went and i took tina and i did it and i thought i was going to die i'm convulsing as i'm coming back (laughs) because tina seemingly as if she knew what we were doing oh she slowed down totally slowed down to where i think i could have swam faster and you know what are you going to do you can't come up and ruin the show so i hung on and we got back in there but my gosh i was (laughs) oh my (laughs) god the whales you know they used to jazz on stuff like that they knew it wasn't oh yeah the norm and yeah yeah. they're too smart they are too smart for their own good um did you think that being in the water with them really aided building a relationship with them? Oh yeah. I I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, it's just, it's an, it's sort of like a fourth dimension, you know, and it's not that you don't have a very strong relationship with them without being in the water. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't question that at all. I think it just adds another dimension Mm -hmm. to that relationship when you can be in the water with them and you can be in the water with them on a normal basis. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. I think they're definitely, even in the modern day, is a way to find a balance. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm forever grateful for the time that I had at Marineland because I feel like we had a fantastic balance between, you know, trusting trainers and trusting whales and still maintaining safety protocols, you know, to the point where we were allowed to do pretty much everything with our animals dry as long as we were sensible enough to read situations and social structure etc and I'm going to be forever grateful for that um obviously during your career in SeaWorld you experienced all of the highs you know you also have seen some lows um you were also involved with Blackfish (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know um what what was your reaction when you were first approached to be part of Blackfish Sure. Well, I I didn't want to do it Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Yeah. Well, and I told uh, Gabriella Copperthwaite, if I've said that right, she was the producer and she would, she'd contacted me a number of times and um, I didn't want to do it, but let let me give you a little bit of context there. I mean, besides the obvious, uh, because I knew what their agenda was. I also knew that Jeff Fentry and John Jett were behind it and you have to understand that Jeff Entry and John Jett and I were very close friends at SeaWorld for a number of years. In fact, we lived together for, for the last years of, of their career there. Um, John ultimately just wasn't very good in the water and ended up moving on to going back to school. Uh, and Jeff was actually fired for, um, he, he deliberately broke some rules especially after he'd been warned a number of times and jeff was sort of a maverick that way um and and then we just our lives went separate ways and then you know of course they didn't come out um as having any problem with SeaWorld or or whales or zoological sciences until you know over a decade later uh after you know dawn's death um so you know, I knew, I knew who was behind it. I knew what their agenda was. And a good friend of mine that's in public relations, she told me, she said, look, um, 
you should do the interview because even if it gets misused or goes the other way, you'll ultimately have a say in it because you were a part of it. And she wasn't wrong. And that's what convinced me to do it. Um, but, you know, I felt like a straw man because they interviewed me for three hours and I was the only one that had them. I, I had the volumes more experience with Tillicum than anybody else in the movie. And I explained the whole entire tragedy, whole entire situation, the precursors, the lead up to it, Tillicum's history, why it happened. Uh, and none of that was used. None of that was used. They they used only what was congruent with their agenda, and and that was it. So, how do you how do you? Oh, of course, I mean, unbelievable. It was frustrating even to watch. You know, I can mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what it would be like to to be that person. Actually, a similar thing happened um, by a French um, anti captivity organization to one of my very good friends while I was on the Killer Real team. There, she was mm -hmm. running a, a VIP program didn't even know she was being filmed. They didn't show her face. Um, mm -hmm. And her explanation of training sessions and everything for this VIP program was edited and cut to sound very incriminating. Um, yeah. So I have complete understanding for how frustrating that must have been, um, but also to potentially feel betrayed by you know people you had worked with. How, what's your opinion of, of trainers or former trainers who do change their opinion like that? Because I feel like they're always the ones that are heard the loudest in the media. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's so many fewer trainers heard. There's many more trainers who, who still agree with, with the field and are behind it, but they're just, their voices are much more silent. Um, what's your opinion of, of trainers changing their tune? Well, you know, I, I wish I had something really profound and introspective to say on that, but it, but I think it's rather simple. And, and, and it has been my experience that every single trainer I know and worked with that changed their tune. And that's not many. You're right to point out that the vast majority of trainers that work there support the field. Um, but every single one I know of that, that has done this has a personal axe to grind. They were fired. They were, they were not promoted adequately according to them. Um, but they have some sort of axe to grind and it's hard not to take that, uh, take notice of that as being part of why they, they turned against, uh, you know, SeaWorld. And in SeaWorld, in this case, you know, most of the people I've worked with is all going to be through SeaWorld. Um, like I said, Jeff and John didn't come out and say they had a problem with anything until after Dawn's death when they, you know, could get, grab their 15 minutes of fame. So I don't have a lot of respect for that. Um, it, you know, it, it was a it was opportunistic and it was convenient and they were riding on the back of a tragedy that that. Uh, I think they abused. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I think that's something that I think the way it's been portrayed in the media makes even the general public forget that these were real human beings. These were people mm -hmm. that we worked with, that we were friends with, you know, whether you're talking about Dawn, whether you're talking about trainers at other parks, you know, mm -hmm. at Laurel Park, we would get guests coming up to us, to our faces and saying, oh, is this not where the trainer that died worked? And I would always be grateful that they would say that to me because there were still friends of that person working 
on the team. And I couldn't even imagine what that would have been like for me if I had known them. So I am incredibly passionate about giving trainers and former trainers whatever platform I can to tell their stories and their positivity and the nuances within the field, because obviously we've come very far from where we started. We're still learning a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you believe that more trainers should be outspoken and vocal about their support of the field? Or do you have, I mean, I, to an extent also have an understanding about why some trainers are reluctant Mm -hmm. to speak out, you know, some of the reasons we already uh, talked about things being taken out of context, but how do you feel about that? Especially with social media these days. Yeah, I, I cannot say strongly enough that absolutely trainers should speak out in support of the field. I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, so let me back up a step to go forward here. I, I have been incredibly blessed to go from a, a training career into rescue and rehab. And I applied a lot of the behavioral sciences that, that I learned as a trainer in rescue and rehab, um, which is even more effective in a rescue and rehab, uh, environment and where you're taking an animal that might be, uh, you know, restored to health and able to be re-released, uh, or one that transitions into permanent care because they can't be released. So, you know, but that experience has exposed me to the environment, uh, the wild, and it is not a pristine environment. In fact, we've done so much damage to the ocean that I don't know that there's a future for a lot of the populations of apex predators that we work with and cetaceans and pinnipeds. So before we get into a conversation about um, whether human care is right or not, we have to set our priorities right and focus on that environment. Um, So that's the big picture to me. I mean, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, which has been accelerated and caused by human activity. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. So to me, how do you get people to care about that? How do you get Joe Sixpack to care about that? And the only way you do it is by showing them that these animals actually are worth caring about. And and we reach more people through our zoos and aquariums in that way. And I'm not even talking about the direct dollars that zoos and aquariums put into research every year and the equipment and the know-how and the manpower and the list goes on that actually contributes to direct conversation, but conservation, but I'm talking about the fact that our best season aquariums are the showroom floor front and center in the fight against extinction. So in that regard, I look at that, the field as a noble one, an incredibly noble one, and one that we should always stand up for and fight for. Um, Oh, I love that. Well, uh, but, you know, I'll go back also to just the practical aspect of of water work with the whales, because I think we've got to go back to that, too. You know, all of this we're sitting here talking about, we wouldn't be having this conversation if Tilikum never went to SeaWorld. Because Tilikum, this is one of the things, you know, Hazel, that the general public and you, you get this, but the general public doesn't get this. They don't understand that Tilikum was an total statistical outlier yeah he was not a sea world whale he was not raised within the sea world system um he you know everything about his learning history was set up for a tragedy like what happened mm-hmm. with dawn 
if Tilikum weren't in that picture, we would still be doing water work with whales in the SeaWorld parks today. And in fact, we would be better and better and better at it because we've gotten better at understanding alternate response training, desensitization, how to handle um, an alternate response being how to handle uh, emerging frustration and precursors like that. We've gotten better at that. So I, I'm confident that it would be a very different world and it all hinges from that one event. Yeah, it absolutely does. And honestly, it's so refreshing and wonderful to hear you talk about this industry with such hope, uh, because I think for a lot of people within the industry or supporters of the industry often feel very hopeless. Uh, mm. And again, I think that's just because the voices that are so loud on the argument are the voices that are, for the most part, against. Um, yeah. But wow, you made so many incredible points there about, you know, you being involved in, in rescue and rehabilitation and about, you know, the future of ocean conservation. And I completely agree. I think that, you know, unfortunately, the media or anti-captivity activists are focusing on the wrong thing. You know, they're mm -hmm. making SeaWorld is the scapegoat and, you know, they're focusing on shutting down zoos and aquariums. And my greatest fear is that 50 years however many years from now there's gonna the ocean is going to be in such a terrible state that everyone is going to turn around and go why didn't we do anything about it and we're yeah. going to be like we were <laughs> we were right. doing things about it and you stopped us um right and and that thought is is absolutely you know terrifying to me but you know, we've spoken a little bit about Blackfish. Um, there was obviously a huge amount of backlash that came for the industry it's straight after that movie. I started my career at the wrong time. Blackfish came out the year before I like became a paid trainer. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yay, I'm finally a dolphin trainer. Oh, wow. Okay, there's this. Um, right. Do you think that the industry handled it the best way they could have? Or could it, there have been more done to kind of offset the damages? No, I do not think that we handled it very well. And I think we're still not handling it well, right? Mm -hmm. We still are expecting everybody else to solve the problem and, and nobody's going to. First of all, we've got associations out there that focus on getting your house in order as if having your house in order is going to have the most extreme animal rights people say oh okay now it's okay that's never going to happen it doesn't matter how well you do your job it doesn't matter if you are cranking out research and you are paying for conservation and you are doing great things they want you to end it's never going to be enough never going to be enough and it's not they it's not them that we need to answer to right this is where we have to go up to 60,000 feet and look at the big picture we need to not only accept that our field is a noble one but it is a necessary one and our body of knowledge belongs to society as a whole not just to us how do we need to use that body of knowledge we need to be going out and doing more building better facilities, research facilities, facilities with the trajectory to repopulate wild populations, we need to do the taboo. And by the taboo, I mean, we need to say, let's use some remote training practices on wild animals so that we can get samples and we can monitor their health in a proactive way. Um, if we don't do that, we're going to lose them. We already know yeah. we're losing them. The, the right, the Southern right whale or Southern, <clears throat> sorry, Southern 
uh, killer whale population up in British Columbia is already a dead man walking. I mean, yeah. that that population is not sustainable. Um, so we have got to apply our trade in a big, big way. And we've got to shout from the mountaintops and we need to get, get the public to recognize that. And this is something the Keiko project taught me. I knew, I knew this throughout other experiences in my career, but one of the things that the Keiko project taught me is that every time we make decisions based on emotion, we make matters worse. We make matters worse. So we we've got to educate the public. We've got to connect the dots and show the public why zoos matter, what they do, that really zoos and aquariums are our biggest weapon in the arsenal, right? Against extinction. They really are single-handedly the biggest weapon that we have. And the general public doesn't know that. They don't know that. And we're still not getting that story across. So. I mean, I think for the most part, the general public know what they're told. You know, if, if right. this is a person that, you know, doesn't have an opinion one way or the other, but reads inflammatory articles about SeaWorld or whatever, they're going to believe, be more inclined to believe that. If they can come to parks and learn for themselves, they're going to be more inclined to believe mm-hmm. that. Um, but going back to the point of how um, it's never going to be enough for certain organizations. I remember when I was working at Laura Park and um, we found out about the breeding ban. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is also a really good example of trainers never being the first to know anything. You know, we are the ones who know the animals the best, arguably. We spend every day with them. We view them as family. uh, And yet we are never involved in decision making processes about them. Uh, For Mm -hmm. us at Laura Park, we found out on social media and we all went into work that morning and confronted our supervisor who had found out the night before (laughs) so um it was all very last minute but I think for every trainer who was involved you know or was working at parks at that moment when that decision was made we all felt extremely betrayed um Mm. because for me personally it felt like one we were giving in and two we were admitting there was something wrong because Mm -hmm. why why would you stop breeding animals specifically natural breeding why would you stop a natural reproductive urge which is actually an indicator yeah it's a passive agreement with the 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 premise and it's it's an indicator of positive welfare in your Mm -hmm. animals to have healthy sexual behavior so yeah for us it felt like they were placating activists and we all knew they were never going to be happy with that Right. No, they're never going to, they are never going to be happy with that. And you also have to understand, and and this is, you know, again, I'm preaching to the choir, the general public doesn't understand this, that animal rights organizations like Humane Society of the United States, you know, one of the wealthiest in the world, and PETA, you know, they make more money off of whale and dolphin issues than any other single animal issue. Dollar for dollar, they make so much money. It is a money, it is a huge money-making business. So to pull on people's heartstrings and get them to send in their dollars. And then there again is the insult and the irony because we know they don't actually do anything for animal welfare. It's their marketing companies, right? But imagine for a moment, if you and I sat here and said, and I, lo- I used to love to play this game in the work environment, especially on the Keiko project, where, you know, we would, we would paint a picture of the perfect world. 
every aspect of it as detailed as we could. And then we would paint a picture of the real world. And then we would try to map our way from the real world to that perfect world. When, when we look at the big picture in this field in a perfect world, I want to just throw a couple ideas at you because think about this. Imagine if there was a United Nations of the zoological community, right? That responded to every need worldwide where if it was a snake issue, we'd send our snake experts. If it was a whale issue, we'd send our whale experts. And they were, you know, they were branded, they wore shirts, the community as a whole, the global community and citizenry knew that this expertise came from our zoos and aquariums. And why? Because they had the day in and the day out care for the animals. They know how to provide a, th a thriving livelihood for them. They know how to handle them. They know how to clean them when there's an oil spill. They know how to release them. They know the social structures. I mean, this is where we should be in the modern zoological world is that we should have that kind of um, public contribution. And it needs to, unfortunately, because everything exists under a brand, for the public to understand the link, it's got to be a branded effort. We also need our trade associations, right? Not just telling us how to keep our house in order, but we need them in Washington, D.C. and other legislative centers around the world being a special interest lobby, lobby and leading the story for us, not reacting. You know, that's the world that we need to get to before things like Blackfish are going to stop impacting us do you because think really there's... sorry i just interrupted you there <laughs> but no, do you go, think, go ahead do you think that there's any way you know obviously we are living in the reality post blackfish <laughs> um, yeah. do you think that there's still any way for us in the modern day to get to that i do i really do because at the end of the day look we're we're either going to rise up and do our job and, and get the general public to make that connection and understand how important um, zoological science is in, in wildlife. They're interdependent. They're not separate issues. Wildlife management and preservation and zoological sciences are one and the same, right? Um, we're either going to get the general public to understand that we're going to do it by leading our own story or circumstances will lead to that. Oh, I hope it's not the latter. <laughs> no, I hope it's not the latter either. But it will happen one way or another. We'll wake up one day and realize the only way that the African elephant survives is in the care of man. The only way killer whales survive is in the care of man. The only way vaquita, and we're already there with so many species, right? So that's going to happen on its own, or we're going to lead it one way or the other. Yeah. And we're going to look back at this time. I'm confident in this, you know, Hazel, I, we're going to look back at this time and things like blackfish and the constant barrage of BS that comes from the animal rights uh, extremists are going to look like, you know, pesky gnats because they didn't understand the big picture. They okay, just I went after so. the heartstrings to make money. And oh, we're gonna, it's all, everybody's going to yeah. see that. I mean, one thing that, you know, the general public connects so well with is our animals. You know, right. people come in and we've seen it. We've seen it from stage. You've seen it from in the water. We've seen it in interaction programs. The awe and the inspiration on kids, but also adults' faces. You yeah. see it in, in real time. And, you know, for me, when I was a child, it was my VHS tape. I watched Free Willy 
over and over and over again. And maybe the message didn't quite get through because it made me want to be a trainer. Um, right. <laughs> I don't really think that was the message of the movie. Um, but it's no secret and no surprise that Keiko from Free Willy is a whale who touched the hearts of millions. And oh, gosh. inspired, just like you were talking about, the donation of millions of dollars to the Free Willy Project, which you were involved in. So I would love um, just to hear a little bit about it. Of course, I've read your book, Killing Keiko. I wish this was not a Zoom call and I could get you to sign my copy. <laughs> um, I <laughs> well, actually... Well... We'll do that eventually. Yes, please. I remember um, just quickly before we start talking about it, I was a dolphin trainer, not yet a killer rail trainer, but I knew it was always my ultimate goal. And I had my copy of Killing Keiko in the staff room uh, and I was reading it on my lunch break. And right at the beginning, you speak quite briefly about what it's like to work with killer rails and their psychology and you know the social structure and the challenge of working with them. And I remember reading it thinking, I wish I would get the chance to, or I hope one day mm -hmm. I'll get the chance to experience this. So it's really great for me to kind of think back to like little 21 year old Hazel, like reading that. And now here you are as a guest on my podcast. This is insane. Um, but yeah, please tell me a little bit about um, being involved with the Free Willy well, well, and you've worked with Killer Whales since then. So do you agree with my my uh, descriptions? Oh, 100% spot <laughs> on. They will make you feel so small. They will make you feel like you know nothing. Like you will yep. be humbled real fast. But what they give you in return, you can't even yeah. put it into words. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, you know, um, gosh, the Keiko, Keiko project was, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a paradox in my head now because it is the source of such angst and frustration and, and sadness that when I really dwell on it, I grind my teeth in my sleep for, for weeks afterwards. But um, it is also the source of one of the most incredible times of my life. And, you know, I, I left SeaWorld um, and SeaWorld, some people might take offense to this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think SeaWorld during the time that I got to be there, and I hope it's still that way, was kind of like the Harvard of the zoological marine mammal field. I mean, and I also got the blessing of working under some incredible people. I mean, I was trained by some of the best of the best there ever was, and they were sticklers for understanding the empirically defined science of behavior, right? Functional analysis and not just making emotional based decisions or subjective decisions, but understanding how to break down antecedent events, consequences and behaviors and, and be able to shape that. So, you know, uh, and that's a natural process, by the way, that we all go through and you can either shape it or you can let it happen. Um, and, and, and we know uh, how important that can be, you know, behavior, is the key to everything. And so I walked out of SeaWorld with that kind of training. And of course, I was, I think, 29 or 30 at the time. And that's an age when you are, um, you have a little bit of wisdom, you have a, a lot more experience than you've ever had in your life. And you also have this indestructible cockiness that you really never have again. <laughs> You're saying this to me as I'm 29, like, well, like it's hiding like the, my face. <laughs> it, it, well, I've had people, I've had friends go, how in the world did you just walk into that and, and say, this is what we're going to do? And it came from that confidence. It really did. And, and you know, I look back and go, gosh, what did, you know, I, I, I'm glad I was well-trained, but 
you know, Keiko was such an amazing project because at that time, and I think maybe still a little bit now, but at that time when someone said you can't do a thing, I was the first one in line to go, well, okay, but let me try. Yeah. You know, and we went into the project and we told the owners, we said, look, we are not going to unilaterally or just uh, universally agree that he's releasable. You know, we want to agree that we're going to do everything in his best interest. And if he doesn't meet the criteria, which mm -hmm. are established, then we will accept his care for the rest of his life, right? And provide for him. And they said, okay. And that was contractually agreed to. Oh, okay. I mean, it was in, in our contract. It was absolutely in our contract. And so with that, we went to work and, and we said, okay, we're systematically going to, you know, um, walk him through this process. And, and really when you define release, right? We, it, it sounds like such a big concept, but it comes down to behavioral um, deficits and surpluses, right? Things that you don't know and things you know too much of. So there's, there's the process of forgetting and or counter conditioning surpluses that you don't need. And there's training um, covertly in this situation, the deficits to give him skills and behaviors that he didn't need. So when you break it down and you do it systematically, um, we had a really, really good process and he achieved some absolutely mind boggling successes. In fact, there are things I take into consulting now with, you know, facilities, man-made facilities that, that I learned from that, the power of it. Um, but ultimately he didn't, he didn't ever eat fish on his own. He never learned how to navigate. Um, he, so he never knew where he was going and he never, um, we were never able to, uh, remove his interest in human and human activity. And with those three things alone, he could never survive on his own. So he needed permanent care and the organization behind it, as you know, decided that we need to show the world this can be done because we're going to do it. We're going to make a business of it. That's what they wanted. You know, they wanted and, it to be a repeatable process. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And to this day, they're still telling the whole world it worked and they're trying to do it with beluga whales and they're trying to do it with, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. I, I don't even know how much you follow, you know, but a few years, decade ago or so, Rick O'Berry used to be one of the big, you know, um, one of the big uh, protagonists in the animal rights world. Well, he's running a facility of his own somewhere in the South China Sea now. Sea world by another name. I mean, and they're building a beluga facility up in, uh, in, um, off the East coast of Canada, Nova Scotia, uh, to put belugas in, and they're going to have a permanent care facility there. So again, see real buying. It all, it all comes down to money at yeah, the end it of the is. day. It, it really all comes is. down to money. And I have a big thing, um, against calling sea pens sanctuaries. I will not do it. It is, well, it is you know, too hey, emotive hey. of a word. Right. Well, it is, it is. And, and, and it is, it's all about weaponizing speech, right? Because when people ask me who's really responsible for Keiko and that project, what I tell them is it's a word. The word captivity is responsible for the cake for Keiko's death. Because when we, that's a hateful word in the English language, the framework surrounding the word captivity means it's hateful. It's punishment, it's deprivation, it's isolation, it's enslavement. None of those connotations fit 
a zoological oh absolutely not and you know right? we're, when you see those animals every single day none of those adjectives describe what we see or work with every single day right they would have they would have you believe by that description that in all the environments you've worked in that love wasn't a part of that relationship oh absolutely Which you're, you're just appalled by hearing that right <laughs> absolutely that. and you know we as trainers we've heard it all you know artificial insemination is rape and you right. know whales sliding up on a slide out for any period of time is attempted suicide you know mm. we've we've heard it spun a million and one different ways and right um like you said yeah they do try to spin Keiko's release as a success uh and I say success in kind of you know quotation marks um but yeah they quote that he lived you know in successfully in the ocean for over five years um which which he didn't by the way he no. never <laughs> he never lived on his own and you know let me just put this out there real quick because I think a lot of people don't know it don't take my word for it a uh, a peer-reviewed a scientific paper was commissioned actually by Humane Society, uh, the irony, commissioned by Humane Society to do a final report on the Keiko project um, between NOAA and the Greenland Institute. And that paper, which is available to this day, concluded that the project was a failure. So you don't need to take my word for it or he said, she said. Yeah. Um, it was absolutely a failure. What I will add to that is that Keiko suffered for a very long period of time and unnecessarily. And if the care given to him in his last year of life were done inside the United States, the people who did oh it my God. would be in jail. Can you it imagine even if... meet minimum USDA standards? Yeah. And, and, you know, what they say about facilities such as SeaWorld or, or anywhere that houses any cetacean in human care. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if that suffering was happening at one of our parks? Oh. What, like what is said already about yeah. our animals and their care standards? Um, right. It's well, and they got away with it because they were hiding in a back, you know, fjord in, in, you know, Norway. I mean, you people couldn't come along and just take pictures of everything they did. But I will yeah. tell you, in the, in the process of writing the book, I spoke to several of the locals that live around that area and would see Keiko on a daily basis. And the stories they told me were just broke my heart all over again. It must you know, have been they, so hard. Um, like, I know. As a trainer, you think about it, obviously, you consider the possibility, like, are these animals going to be taken from us, given mm -hmm. into the hands of a company or people who do not know anything about them, don't know their favorite toy, mm -hmm. don't know how their mind works, don't know how they like to eat their fish um, and, and what could happen to them. You know, I ended up writing a book about it because I was like, I need to get this right. out of my brain. Um, right. Do you think that, I mean, aside from the fact that it must have been awful for you knowing Keiko and, and, and knowing that that was happening to him. And I can't even imagine the whole host of emotions that that, mm -hmm. you know, summons up. But do you think that if it had been a different individual whale, because you've spoken a lot about Keiko's personality, mm -hmm. if it had been a female, a juvenile mm -hmm. female, someone who was a female who was potentially less attached to humans while mm -hmm. in human care, do you think that the project ever could have been a success? Um, no, and I'll and I'll tell you why. Um, 
because you're talking about a long-term care animal that's been in human care for a long term. And, you know, a lot of people will ask, well, what, when it, where's that line in the sand, right? How long in human care before they can no longer survive on their own? Well, we don't really have a measuring stick for that, but we, there are other species of animals where we know it very well. We know it very, very well. For example, mm -hmm. black bears. You can take a black bear that has lived its entire life in the wild. If we, and within two weeks in human care, where it can associate its food source with humans, it's corrupted. It can no longer go back to the wild. Now, we're talking about whales and dolphins. Now, if, if you took statistically 100 killer whales that had been in the care of man for as long as Keiko, let's say, you know, at the time, 18 years when that project started. I think one out of that hundred might just it by dumb luck survive, mm -hmm. you know, um, but that's best case scenario. 99 would not, they will seek human attention. And also there's the question of why put them through it for what end result? Well, because of our emotional idea, our ideology that that life is better for them. But what you have to understand, and I say this to people all the time, their lives are very different they're not lesser, they're different. Now we've already identified a lot of different ecotypes of killer whales, right? When you boil down what an ecotype is, it's really a behavioral, behavioral difference, right? It's not, not a physiological difference, it's a behavioral difference. There might be some physiological adaptations due to colder water, or bigger ranges or stamina or whatever, but most of it's behavioral because of their topography of where they live, their food source, things like that. Killer whales in the care of man could be called an ecotype based in that type of definition, right? Because they've learned differently. They do not have to go hundreds of miles to seek their food, but yet their energy and time goes into social interaction, exercise, interaction with people and learning, learning behaviors that are not unnatural, not at all to them. Um, so it's yeah, a I mean, we, it's we not had lesser. Yeah, like just going back to the the natural behaviors, you know, some of these behaviors you might not see whales mm -hmm. do out in the wild. You know, we had a behavior called the break spin. So the whale comes out on its side, spins 360 degrees out of the water. Um, do animals in the wild do that? But yeah, some of them do. Some whales in, you know, mm -hmm. Patagonia will slide out for sea lions. Um, not quite as artistically or right. perfect <laughs> as our whales might do it. Um, but, you know, we would see that behavior all the time, you know, when we were coming in and out of, of work, you know, sun is rising, the whales are all playing on the beaching, they're yeah. pushing each other off of it, they're sliding across it, they're like emitting these like little squeaks and squeals. And yeah, it, it, right. was, it was a great way to start your morning, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest. And to the learning part, I remember watching Morgan, um, the killer whale who was rescued, uh, who now lives permanently at Laurel Park, we were teaching her the TNT behavior. And she would practice it outside of session. Mm. And she would pop her head up and look around as if like, did someone see that? Like someone right. see how, like, how much better I'm doing? Like she was just practicing it by herself. And, you know, yeah, we try to be as anthropomorphic as possible, but you know, it's, it's difficult when you see things like that happening every day to then say mm -hmm. they don't enjoy it. Well, and how do we measure health, right? So we're, we're in our industry right now, and also some of the animal rights groups, the more, the more um, 
uh, anti-zoo ones are all trying to define and quantify what animal welfare means, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so as that process uh, develops, um, we're really asking how do we measure the animal's well-being, right? Mm -hmm. And we have ways we know this from working with them. Like, so for example, if you, you're not an evil person, nor is anybody I, I know that I've worked <laughs> with, right? If you saw things that indicated to you, whether you could define them or itemize them or not, if you saw behavior, if you felt that the animals were suffering, there's no way in the world you would continue to do what you're doing. You no, might be, absolutely not. You might be right leading the animal rights groups against zoos and aquariums. Mm -hmm. So we've got hundreds and thousands of people that work with animals day in and day out, just like us that see them thriving, mm -hmm. that we know that they are doing well. And also there are some objective measures. Um, you know, current research shows that when we're, we're going to go back and keep focusing on killer whales, we could use dolphins or pinnipeds, sea lions, other species yeah. that are living longer in the care of man than in the wild. But killer whales are on the cusp of that. Mm -hmm. Current research shows they live as long as the most studied populations. But when you look at the trajectory of that research, and then you look forward the next 10 years, if we continued our programs like we had been breeding and otherwise, it's entirely likely that those whales yeah. in the care of man are going to outlive their wild counterparts. Yeah. And there's good reasons for that because the wild's getting nastier, right? It's mm -hmm. not getting better. So, uh, and we're getting better at what we do. So there are a lot of ways to measure that. And again, when it comes down to the heart of it, and I used to, I, when we, I would get into debates, you know, where we had to maybe be on camera with a, with an animal rights advocate. And I just say, you, you can't possibly, you, you're essentially claiming that I'm an evil person yeah. that knowingly goes in and does these things, these animals. And we know that's just not true. I mean, our whole job description is being an animal carer. We're all animal lovers. That's why we get into the job in the first place. Well, and do you think you could hide an abused and sad animal from the general public? No. <laughs> no. People know what they see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we know what we do. And, you know, I honestly, I have to thank you for, you know, you've made this whole episode very hopeful and I myself feel very inspired and I genuinely and fervently hope that, we can paint a brighter future for this industry than than what it's kind of been going through. I, I also agree that it's been a bumpy road for the last 10 years or so. And I hope that now we're going to start seeing that positive change. We're going to have more scientific papers coming in that are, you know, on our side. And, you know, we're going to be able to, to hopefully move forward. So if you have a message for anyone listening who potentially is in the industry or thinking about getting into the field, what would your advice be for them? I would say you would be entering the field at the best time in recorded history. I mean, our zoos are so essential to the future of conservation, preservation, fighting extinction. It, it is an absolutely noble profession. You got to be proud of it. You got to stand tall, uh, shout it from the mountaintops. And we as a field have to get better at communicating that message to the general public. And we will. Yes. Um, whether we do it or whether the general public wakes up and realizes how badly it's needed one way or another, it's going to happen, but go for it, do your best, be proud. Don't even think twice, um, you know, and, and make people care about why we've got to preserve these animals. So that's, that's, 
there's nothing more noble than that. Oh, thank you so much for, you know, everything that you've said um, on this episode, Mark. It has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege um, to sit down and talk to you. Well, I've enjoyed it, Hazel. Thank you very much. You inspired me as well. So thank you. Well, for we'll trade that. signing of books, by the way. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will catch you all next week.